0: It's Thursday, May 26th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to The Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. Every weekday from 3 to 6 Eastern time, we're glad to have you here. If you can't catch the entire show on any given day or any given program, we have a podcast. It is free. The whole show on demand. No charge to you. GuyBensonShow.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Guy Benson Show. On the program today, Carl Rove will be here later this hour. Julio Rosas later on will join us from Uvalde, Texas. We will also check in with Josh Krasauer on some politics. But before we get to any of that, I have to tell you, as we come on the air, we just wrapped a press conference down in Uvalde from the Texas Department of Public Safety. And they had an officer who was leading the press conference Victor Escalon. And I was expecting maybe to get some answers and some clarity from him and from them about what the hell actually happened earlier this week at the Robb Elementary School. And I'm sorry to say, and I'll explain all of this. We have lots of audio. I'm sorry to say that I come out of listening to that press conference more confused and more suspicious than I was before the press conference occurred. And I will also confess that I was already pretty confused and suspicious before those feelings deepened as a result of what I just watched. Let's pause and back up. And I'm going to be very careful and try to be very measured about how I talk about this. Obviously, there was a chaotic, horrible Very dangerous situation. I think sometimes people unfairly second-guess police. We are pro-law enforcement on this show. They're also not infallible. And accountability is always important. We have 21 dead people, including 19 kids. There needs to be a crystal clear timeline ...about what exactly happened and what didn't happen, and the story keeps changing. Now, I get it. There's the fog that clouds an event like this, and sometimes it takes a while for the fog to lift and for facts to be separated from fiction. What is concerning to me is the degree to which statements of fact given to us by the officials there have been changing. And how there are big gaps in the timeline that make absolutely no sense to me. So I think it's important for us to step carefully. To not jump to conclusions. To not revile anyone without evidence. But I think it is important to ask questions. And as I said. I am increasingly concerned that officials might be trying to deflect away from some major failures at that school. Last night, there was an Associated Press story that was published, and I wasn't seeing much of this anywhere else, but it's the AP. I clicked on it. I started reading it. Let me just give you a few paragraphs from last night's AP story, quote, frustrated onlookers urged police officers to charge into the Texas elementary school where a gunman's rampage killed 19 children and two teachers. Witnesses said Wednesday as investigators work to track the massacre that lasted lasted upwards of 40 minutes and ended when the 18 year old shooter was killed by a border patrol team. The border patrol thing, that element of this story has always been weird to me. Because that. Element That officer. Reportedly showed up much later on the scene, there were lots of other units and officials on the scene before him, but it took that guy with a few others to actually breach the room and take the shooter out. Why? A Border Patrol officer, that's not even really principally his job. I think there are some theories on that. Was he outside a certain chain of command? Was he someone who was basically freelancing, saying, screw this, I need to do something? And he would had a gun and a badge and he did it? I don't know. Let me underscore that. I don't know. Is that something that I'm starting to suspect? Yes. Back to this AP story from last night. "Quote: Go in there. Go in there. A nearby woman shouted at the officers soon after the attack began. This, according to a 24-year-old woman who watched the scene from outside her house, across the street from the school. The witness said the officers did not go in. Javier Caseras, whose fourth-grade daughter was killed in the attack, said he raced to the school when he heard about the shooting, arriving while police were still gathered outside the building. Upset that police were not moving in, he raised the idea of charging into the school himself with several other bystanders. Let's just rush in because the cops aren't doing anything like they are supposed to, he said. More could have been done. They were unprepared. So that's the lead in this story last night in the AP. I said, okay. We need a lot of questions answered and we need a lot more transparency than we're getting. Because. A few things here really aren't adding up. And I started having flashbacks to the. Parkland shooting at that high school in South Florida, remember how there were officers on scene and it turned out they did nothing, they basically hid. They cowered while kids were getting gunned down, not doing their jobs, remember that. It's hard to rely on good guys with guns if the good guys with the guns aren't willing to actually engage. That's, you know, advantage to the school shooter at that point. What on earth was going on at this elementary school or not going on? I said, let's wait in my mind. I'm talking to myself late at night reading this. Let's wait and see if there's corroboration. Surely there's going to be some sort of clarification. I started to also see some circulating comments. About how allegedly some officers may have gone into the school to get their own kids. While this was playing out. And I asked a friend, where are you getting that? And he sent me a link with a story and a quote. This was a local news interview yesterday down in Texas. With Chris Oliveras, who we've had on this show, he was down there at the border with us. He does good work. On that issue down at the border. He's a spokesperson for DPS. And here's what he said in a local news interview yesterday in Cut 38.
2: Uh, we've heard that some law enforcement officers actually went into school uh, to get their kids out. Can you right. talk about that? Right. So what we do know, Vanessa, right now, that there was some uh, police officers, families trying to get their children out of the school because it was an active shooter situation right now. It's a terrible situation right now, and of course, just as we mentioned, the loss of life. It's it's just terrible. It's a terrible tragedy. Okay, and then, and then he goes on. But again, we but got...
0: you, you heard the key bit there. The question was. We heard that some law enforcement officers actually went into the school to get their kids out. Can you talk about that? Answer, right? All we do know right now is that there was some police officers and families trying to get their children out of the school because there was an active shooter situation. That sounds to me like confirmation. If you had law enforcement not going in to confront The suspect for quite some time, and I know that he was shooting and he was holding them at bay, but you had officers going into the school to get their own kids. I understand that impulse. I can only imagine as a parent you want to protect your own. Also, you have to protect and serve the public good. That's the sworn duty here. Now, is that answer there from Olivera's? actually true? Did he fully understand what was being asked of him? Was the timeline correct? Were the officers allegedly going in to try to grab their own kids and get them to safety while there was an active shooter still going on? That shooting still happening? I don't know. And I'm going to keep coming back to those words. I don't know over and over again, because it is extremely unclear still what happened. This was two days ago. If it's true, if that actually did happen, officers going to get their own kids while other children were in harm's way, I don't know how that is defensible. That's why we need facts, we need transparency, and we need accountability. Now, part of the reason that I find that potential situation about officers going in but not getting the shooter Part of the reason that's even more appalling is a new Wall Street Journal story that just came out this afternoon. Let me read to you from the Wall Street Journal story. And I'm just going to tell you in advance, there was a press conference that I mentioned at the very top of the show just before we came on the air that I thought would clarify some of this. Because they've got a lot of questions to answer, and I'm telling you, we'll play you the sound I think they made things worse in that press conference. So here's the Wall Street Journal story, which follows on from the AP story that we've already read from. This is new. This is fresh from WSJ. Headline, Uvalde residents voice frustration over shooting response. Residents here expressed anger and frustration Thursday about the time it took for law enforcement to end an elementary school shooting in which 19 children and two teachers died as videos circulated on social media showing parents confronting police outside the building. Quote, the police were doing nothing, said Anjali Rose Gomez, who after learning about the shooting drove 40 miles to the school where her children are in second and third grade. They were just standing outside the fence. They weren't going in there or running anywhere. So this woman arrived on the scene. I guess while it was still active, she drove 40 miles after hearing about what was happening to witness what she at least perceived to be a lot of inaction from the authorities. State officials have said that local police were at the school within a few minutes of the gunman entering the building and exchanged gunfire with him. But they were unable to gain access to a classroom where he barricaded himself, firing on officers. Ms. Gomez, a farm supervisor, said that she was one of numerous parents who began encouraging, first politely, then with more urgency, police and other law enforcement to enter the school. After a few minutes, she said federal marshals approached her and put her in handcuffs, telling her she was being arrested for intervening in an active investigation. Again, I think we need more context here, but this sounds awful. Terrified mother drives 40 miles to the school, believes the cops really aren't doing much of anything, is begging them, urging them to do it, and then she gets arrested. Ms. Gomez convinced local officers, whom she knew, to persuade the marshals to set her free. Around her, the scene was frantic. She said she saw a father tackled and thrown to the ground by police and a third pepper sprayed. They were working hard to keep the parents out of the building. What were they doing in the building? Maybe there is some defense for this. Maybe arresting and pepper spraying and tackling parents could be justified in some way. Maybe they worried that they could be in harm's way if they entered the school. Maybe they were trying to secure the scene after all the killing was over. I don't know the timeline because no one seems to know the timeline. But apparently you had officers freeing their own kids while preventing other parents from doing the same thing. That's the allegation. Again, I am not presenting really any of this as hard and fast fact yet. Because we aren't getting much of that. So this woman was handcuffed and then she convinced them to let her go, uncuff her. She did. Once she was freed, Ms. Gomez made her distance from the crowd, sort of crept away from the crowd, then jumped the school fence, ran inside, grabbed her two kids, and sprinted out of the school with them. So she was able to get in eventually and get her kids. Videos circulated on social media Wednesday and Thursday of frantic family members trying to get access to the school as the attack was unfolding, some of them yelling at police who brought, uh, blocked them from entering. Quote, shoot him or something. A woman's voice can be heard yelling on video before a man is heard saying to the officers, they're all just bleeping parked outside, dude. They need to go in there. Parents can be heard yelling to each other that their kids were inside the school and that they, that they needed to go get them, get in. A woman can be heard yelling at a police officer, he's one person, take him out. A state trooper said he went to the school with a friend whose wife was one of the teachers slain in the shooting. He said police were already on scene indicating a fast response time and that it appeared they had set up a perimeter around the building. After the confrontation finally ended, school buses began to arrive to transport students from the school. According to a witness, she said she saw police use a taser on a local father who approached the bus to collect his child. Quote, they didn't do that to the shooter, but they did that to us. That's how it felt, she said. So you had the Associated Press yesterday. Now the Wall Street Journal with these details. What on earth was going on? And maybe some of the chaos might make a little bit more sense if we understood when things were happening when they were unfolding, when they weren't. Which brings us to the press conference that happened just before we came on the air. We'll take a break. I'll play you some of the sound. I'll play you some of that audio. Just get ready for more questions than answers on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back.
1: The Guy Benson Show. More next. From the Fox News Podcasts Network.
0: I'm Janice Dean,
3: Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the
0: sunshine. I'm Guy Benson. So I was teasing this press conference and some of the audio from it. One of the few details that we seem to have ascertained in the last couple days was that the shooter showed up outside the school, was confronted by a resource officer who was armed, and they exchanged rounds, and the officer was wounded. Remember that? That's what they told us. That's what they told Bill Malugin. That's what he reported on the show here yesterday. Well, now the story is that that didn't happen at all. There was no officer. There was no armed person. There was no exchange of fire. The non-existent guy wasn't wounded. And the shooter just walked right in through an open unlocked door. Here is Victor Escalone earlier, just minutes ago in cut 44. So at this time,
2: no, no, there was not an officer readily available armed. No, no, nothing, nothing. I can't answer that yet. I'll circle back with you again. As we do that investigation, we have all these questions. We want to answer, but
0: I'll get back with you, sir. Now, part of me feels for this guy who's the spokesperson for DPS who's just trying to piece this stuff together. But when they tell us a huge detail, and now they're saying actually that whole element of this crime, of this massacre, never happened. There was no armed guard. There was no back and forth shooting where someone got wounded and then he went into the school. That is a massive change in the story here. How did that happen? And the timeline that he gave also made very little sense to me. We will play you that audio and walk you through it when we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show reporting on this school shooting. We'll be right back.
1: Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson.
0: We continue here on the Guy Benson Show. And I have to just admit, I'm still sort of reeling from that press conference that I watched here at Fox as we were getting ready for the show. If you're just joining us, I read from an AP story from last night and now a Wall Street Journal story today that parents arriving on the scene at the school were very angry that the police seemed to be doing kind of nothing. For a long period of time, and they were urging them to do something, offering to go in themselves. Parents were allegedly detained by law enforcement to prevent that. While, again, allegedly some officers may have gone in to get their own kids. It's hazy. It's murky. The timeline is still very strange to me. And given all of this and the questions that have been swirling. I was hopeful that the press conference would shed light on what happened. And I would submit to you, I would suggest that perhaps the opposite happened during the press conference. There was a lot of thanking of everybody who was working on it and explaining that, you know, it's hard work and they're trying to figure it out. And sometimes this takes a long time and that's all well and good and understandable. Right. I accept that. We don't get a perfect picture of everything immediately. And sometimes, especially in the immediate aftermath or like while things are happening, there are rumors that get started that turn out to be untrue. And that's, you know, part of the challenge of covering something like this. But we've now been told for two days, for example, that there was a school resource officer who was armed, who was shooting back and forth with the killer, who got wounded in the process, and then the killer was then able to gain entry into the school. What they changed the story to today was actually there was no such officer. That didn't happen. And they're saying the killer went through a back door that was just unlocked. So the spokesperson for the Texas Department of Public Safety, Victor Escalon, led this press conference. He gave a statement at length. Then he answered a few questions, and we have a new version of the story, and I would say more opacity and confusion. I hope you do not mistake the frustration that I'm expressing here for hostility to the police or some sort of Monday morning quarterback know-it-all attitude. But I think when you've got this many people dead, especially children, the public is entitled to accurate information as soon as possible and a timeline that makes sense and isn't changing. Big, big details in the official account aren't changing or shifting or just being erased seemingly out of nowhere. And when you layer on top of it these allegations about how parents were treated and what they were seeing and not seeing, you start to think back to the Parkland failure. And you start to wonder, might something like that have been the case here until finally a Border Patrol agent shows up and says, enough of this. Someone has to do something. I'm going to do it. I've got my own chain of command. I'm going to go in. I don't know that to be the case. But that is a working theory that seems more and more plausible by the minute. I want to play for you the timeline that they just announced minutes ago. Starting in cut 40, listen.
2: On Tuesday, May 24th at 1128, suspect just west of here wrecks his vehicle. Pickup truck that he took from his grandmother. He had just shot his grandmother in the face. She's alive. She's stable at this point. 1128, he's sitting there at the bar ditch. He jumps out the passenger side of the truck. According to witnesses, he's got a long arm, rifle, and a bag. Later, we find out it's ammunition. He walks around. He sees two witnesses at the funeral home across the street from where he wrecked. He engages and fires towards them. He continues walking. He continues walking towards the school. He climbs a fence. Now he's in the parking lot shooting at the school multiple times. 1140, he walks into the west side of Robb Elementary.
0: Okay, that's the first piece of it. 1128 a.m. on Tuesday, He wrecks the vehicle, gets out with his rifle, and starts shooting at witnesses who saw the crash who were at a nearby funeral home. He starts shooting at them. They escape. He then walks to the school, climbs a fence, and he enters. And by the way, while he's walking towards the school, they say he's, quote, shooting at the school multiple times. And at 1140, he enters the school. Let's just stop there for a second. And I'm not, like, trying to. Zapruder film this thing or anything. We just don't really know what happened. But I have questions already. Eleven twenty eight, he emerges with his gun. He's firing at people, he's shooting at the school. Obviously at that point there are nine one one calls happening. Right? People inside the school are calling the police. If he's shooting at the school, if he's shooting at the people at the funeral home, they're gonna call the police. That's 1128. We know two minutes later, the 911 calls were confirmed. 1130. He says that later on. It wasn't until 1140 that he enters the school. So to me here, there's a gap of about, what, 12, 10 to 12 minutes from him getting out of his vehicle with his gun and him entering the school. That's a long time. 12 minutes. I'm not personally familiar with all the geography here, but you've seen the overhead maps and shots. I mean, he was right there at the school. What happened for 12 minutes there? And if he was shooting multiple times at the school during that period, that would be more than enough time, you would think, for anyone with a gun, an officer at the school, to respond, which, again, we were told for two days did happen. And now we were told today did not happen. There was no confrontation there. No, there was no officer with a gun. And so the killer entered unobstructed into the school through a side door that was unlocked. I'm just trying to figure out what hap- what went down for those 10 to 12 minutes. That's also a long period of time to start scrambling resources and to get people to the school. The explanation continues. Cut 41 according
2: to reports video we have obtained from outside inside and again, we're still combing through that. So bear with us. Multiple rounds, numerous rounds are discharged in the school. We're trying to do get a number. We're in the process of analyzing that video. Four minutes later, Local police departments, Uvanda Police Department, the Independent School District Police Department are inside making entry. They hear gunfire, they take rounds, they move back, get cover, and during that time they approach where the suspect is at. According to the information I have, he went in at eleven forty. He walked. And I'm an approximate 20 feet, 30 feet. He makes a right. He walks into the hallway. He makes a right. Walks another 20 feet. Turns left into a schoolroom, into a classroom that has doors
0: open in the middle. So he arrives at f- 1140. Four minutes later, the police arrive. They go toward the gunfire. He's shooting at them. That's what it's sounding like. Cut 42, this continues.
2: Officers are there. The initial officers, they receive gunfire. They don't make entry initially because of the gunfire they're receiving. But we have officers calling for additional resources. Everybody that's in the area, tactical teams. We need equipment. We need specialty equipment. We need body armor. We need precision riflemen, negotiators. So during that time that they're making those calls to bring in help to solve this problem and stop it immediately, they're also evacuating personnel, not say personnel, students, teachers. There's a lot going on, a lot complex situation. They're measuring, they're measuring. Approximately an hour later, U.S. Border Patrol, Tactical teams arrive.
0: They make entry. Shoot and kill the suspect. Okay. That was sort of the wow moment for me, listening to all of that. The local police arrive. They're getting fired at. They don't make entry. I guess they don't really go after the suspect because he's shooting. He's then holed up in a classroom. They're calling for backup. Some of them are trying to Evacuate other parts of the school. And again, I don't know what the right protocol is, who you should be getting out of the school. Are you trying to go get the suspect and neutralize him if he's shooting children? There's a lot going on. He says it's very complex. He says some of this stuff is still unclear. Bear with us. I'm willing to give a lot of benefits of doubts. I'm not willing to just sit and pretend like they're not changing the story dramatically here and not accounting for long periods of time, given what happened. So they've basically set up a perimeter, it sounds like. It's complex. They're measuring. I don't know exactly what that means. They're waiting for more backup, whatever's happening, and then, quote, Approximately an hour later, Border Patrol arrives. They make entry and shoot and kill the suspect. Now, let me just again, I'm trying to use my words deliberately and not jump to any conclusions. However, If there's an hour-long process here, now, is it possible, and this is just horrible to think and talk about, is it possible that the suspect, the killer, who's now dead, entered the school unobstructed, made a few turns, ended up in a classroom, shot everyone immediately, they were all gone, and then he was by himself in that classroom, barricaded in until someone did something? That is possible. That is entirely possible. Horrific. But a a Plausible, reasonable explanation. I don't know if that's true. I don't know how long the shooting of kids lasted and teachers. I don't really understand how it took. More than an hour. For someone to show up with a badge and guns to actually decide to go. And take this person out, and it was from Border Patrol of all of the agencies involved. An hour is what he said. And he kind of makes it seem easy at that point. Well, an hour later, Border Patrol shows up, quote, they make entry, shoot and kill the suspect. What was being done in the intervening period of time, a very long period of time? Were there, look, it's it's entirely possible that there were kids and adults who were shot dead who never stood a chance. By the way, we know that there were multiple wounded. What if there were people bleeding out? That's the other part of this. You're just waiting and waiting and waiting. There could be people dying, bleeding, needing attention, whose lives might be saved. We don't know. Again, there's that's the recurring theme here. We don't know because this doesn't make sense. But what happened for an hour? And then finally, before he opened it up for questions, he was talking about negotiations, how they were trying to negotiate with the shooter, which is – that's not a word I had heard before connected to this story, that there were any sort of negotiations. He talked about trying to bring in a negotiator. I can understand that being like a backup plan if there were hostages. Were there hostages? Was he negotiating hostages? Someone followed up about that, and the answer was like, oh, we were attempting, but he didn't respond. So I'm not really sure if there were negotiations or not. I don't know if they talked to this suspect or this active shooter while – he was holed up in the classroom, whether he was holding uh, kids hostage or anyone else. I don't know. I do not know. What we seem to know as of today is that there were parents begging law enforcement to do something. That was not happening to their satisfaction And when parents tried to then go and get their own kids, they were physically restrained or arrested or tased and pepper sprayed. And from the moment that the guy with the gun got out of his car and started shooting at people, there was a 12-minute gap before he entered the school. And then at least, what, an hour and four minutes elapsed before he was killed by agents from another agency who finally showed up in addition to everyone else who is there doing other things other than, I guess, engaging the suspect. And again, that's a lot easier said than done. It's like, hey, do you want to go into the room with the guy with the powerful weapon who's trying to shoot everyone? No. Is that part of the job? I think so. I mean, that's, that's the job, right? Just some of these flashbacks to Parkland at least based on this incomplete picture, are kind of eerie. And as I said, the answers that I was expecting, frankly, to get this afternoon a little bit earlier were not forthcoming. And if you say anything about what we heard, the waters were muddied further. I am not going to sit here and hurl accusations at anyone right now. I know that there's a lot of speculation and a lot of blame starting. I want to kind of keep that powder dry. I will say that to my ear, listening to all of this, it doesn't make sense. The changes that have been made to the story are significant. Like the good guy with the gun who was shot trying to stop him, I guess, didn't, didn't exist at all, as it turns out. And we absolutely— Need a full accounting and a transparent timeline, and we absolutely do not have that on this Thursday, more than 48 hours after what happened. We got a break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Guy Benson will be right back. Back on The Guy Benson Show, this from a local news report in San Antonio. Joe Garcia, husband of Irma Garcia, who is one of those two teachers who was shot and killed in Uvalde, has reportedly suffered a fatal heart attack. Joe and Irma were high school sweethearts, married 24 years, and they leave behind four kids. lord have mercy four orphans a mother murdered a father dying of stress and a broken heart how can we help those kids they're going to need a lot of help tragedy sometimes has a way of compounding Mm. (sighs) another hour coming up it's the guy benson show
1: from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show.
0: A new hour here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for being here. I'm Guy Benson. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Our podcast is always free. You can follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at Guy Benson Show. Fox News alert. The Dow finishes up today, 516 points, closing at 32,637. And I see that the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office has put out their estimate that significant inflation will continue until 2024. So this could be... A lasting problem here. Very much the opposite of transitory. The way it was sold and spun for so long. Government also revising down the GDP shrinkage number from last quarter. We know that it had contracted and the government now saying it contracted more than initially thought. So uh, a couple disturbing Economic pieces of news coming out today and perhaps not surprisingly, a couple ugly polls again for the president overall and on the economy and on the issue of inflation hitting a new low that I saw in the Reuters poll. We'll get into some of the politics of the day and electoral politics coming up later this hour with Josh Krasauer. I do want to bring you an update, a local news story out of Texas. And this goes to our whole first hour, which was devoted to the details of what did or did not happen in Uvalde, Texas, and the changing story, and really a a very confounding press conference earlier today. I want to warn you that this report is very difficult to hear. It is from an eyewitness account from a child who survived but saw what happened. This is from K.E.N.S. five down there. This boy. Who gave the interview and four others hit under a table with a tablecloth over it, which may have shielded them from the shooter's view and saved their lives. The boy shared heartbreaking details about what happened in the room. When the cops came, one cop said, yell if you need help. And one of the people in my class said, help. The guy, meaning the shooter, overheard, and he came in and shot her, the boy said. The cops barged into the classroom, the guy shot at the cop, and the cops started shooting. Once that all ended and the shooting stopped, the boy came out from under the table. I just opened the curtain, I just put my hand out. And he knew that that was at that point safe and it was the police there to save him. Now, I don't read that account to you for shock value. I read that account to you because it plays into this timeline and some of the questions that we've been asking. I was. Speculating or wondering, is it possible that the shooter entered that classroom very early on, killed everyone, barricaded himself, and there was just a standoff for a while? And then eventually they decided we're going to go in once the Border Patrol guys show up and said enough is enough. We're going in. Or were there still hostages or or kids being killed or kids hiding who might be killed, kids in active danger? And based on this, based on this local news report, and again, everything's sort of hard to track and we need to confirm everything. But according to this boy who was in the room hiding, it sounds like there were at, there were children being killed up until the very minute that the Border Patrol agent burst in. And he didn't show up on the scene until an hour after this all started. And I'm just saying, as we start to piece more of this together, a picture is emerging. Unless we are given better information, a picture is emerging that is not just disturbing for all the obvious reasons, but also based on the response, which continues to evolve and change. Joining us now is Darren Porcher, former NYPD lieutenant, New York City Police Department, now a Fox News commentator, contributor. Darren, it is good to have you here. Well, thanks for having me on. However, these are unfortunate circumstances that I'm going to
5: opine on, so... We'll do the best that we can to get through this tough time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate it. I want to ask you, I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to watch the press conference earlier in Uvalde. Uh, There are a lot of people asking questions about what the police did or did not do, uh, when they did or did not do those things. A lot of parents were very upset. That's now being widely reported. Uh, the, The timeline that's been given, some of the details have changed multiple times. What do you make of all of this? Is it Is it normal to have a lot of big things that are told to the public shift or change 48 hours later? Are people being too hard on law enforcement here? Are we missing something when we're asking these questions? I'm I'm very curious how you are seeing this through the lens of someone who worked for your career in law enforcement. Well,
5: the anticipation for the common citizen is we want as much information as quickly as possible in the wake of a mass shooting of this magnitude. That being said, police, law enforcement, and the public affairs officers are working as hard as possible to get that information out. However, there's also a component of civil liability that they're being, a lev- they, they want to be somewhat surreptitious, and I use that term surreptitious lightly, to protect the municipality from an upcoming uh, lawsuit. That being said, the information that's coming out is ever so evolving, and it's massive. I mean, from the number of shots that are fired from the time frames, the 911 call, who did what. This is a complicated um, narrative to compress, dissect, and get out to the public accordingly. That's why we hear the ever so
0: evolving uh, changes in the story that's being put out to the public. One piece of it that I'm trying to wrap my head around is they they told us for two days that there was an armed officer at the school who confronted the gunman before he got into the school, and they exchanged fire, and that officer was wounded. And then the killer went into the building and started killing children. Today they – I don't even want to call it clarified. They they changed it completely and said that didn't happen. That person didn't exist. The exchange did not occur. The shooter, in the course of 12 minutes, I guess, from crashing his vehicle, ended up in the school – unobstructed through an unlocked door, how does, how does that official account change? Because they announced that publicly multiple times, sort of in like, here's what we know, here's the information that we have ascertained so far, and they, they just sort of gave us a piece of information that they're now seeming to walk back entirely. How does that kind of thing happen? Well,
5: I give you an example. You can have 10 people that look at the same picture and give you 10 different perspectives on what they see. That being said, you had people in the earlier part of the investigation that introduced information that they may well have believed was accurate. However, based on people in a state of anxiety um, experiencing an event of this magnitude, their detail orientation may be off. And news media traditionally, and I'm guilty of it myself, will capture the information that they get immediately so they can get that out to the public. Unfortunately, on many occasions, this is wrong. From the outset, the very beginning of an incident, we're all speaking from a position of conjecture. We don't have all sides of the spectrum in connection with the incident. But going back to the resource officer, you know, it it becomes really troubling as to why we didn't have an individual that was protecting the lives of these innocent children at this school. And I give you, when we look at history, if you don't study history, you will be a victim of it. Years ago, we had the Nicholas Cruz shooting at Parkland. Nicholas Cruz got out of his vehicle and started shooting in the parking lot. There was an exchange of gunfire before before Nicholas Cruz even got into the school and he was able to penetrate that front door because it was unlocked. We had a very similar dynamic that occurred in this situation. So it begs the question of what fortifications were in play at that school to prevent an assailant from coming in. And it was clear that it was a flawed security uh, mechanism that was in play.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, Uh, we also found out in Parkland that there were officers who didn't do anything, and that ended up being a huge scandal down there. In this case, I have to say, Lieutenant, I don't know if there was an officer at this school or not before everything started because we were told, like, confidently as a fact, not just immediately after, but the next day, you know, at planned press conferences that this did happen. And that spawned a thousand hot takes about how good guys with the gun couldn't even stop what happened here. And then here we are Thursday afternoon and they say, oh, never mind. That person didn't exist. He wasn't there. There, there was no shootout with that person. Um, it's it's sort of just hard for me to fathom how that type of thing, how they get that wrong And it's not, you know, a rumor that gets whispered to reporters. It's said in front of all the cameras and the microphones. I think they gave that information to the governor of the state who announced it. So clearly that was the official account. And I'm not saying that, you know, Governor Abbott lied or something. I think they gave him the official account. He related to the public. And now that official account is changing in in very dramatic ways. I think there will be lots of tough questions upcoming for the responding officers about what they did or did not do. I think sometimes it is unfair to second-guess police. I think sometimes it is fair to second-guess anyone, especially when things go so catastrophically wrong. You just made a point, though, Lieutenant, about school safety. Look, I feel like we should not turn schools into fortresses. We should not overstate and overcorrect for a problem that is far too frequent but still extremely rare. I also don't want kids defenseless as sitting ducks with no one there to protect them at all. And now, again, it appears that there was no one there to protect them at all. And that that reality, if it is eventually confirmed, uh, could have been lethal. Your thoughts on that? Um,
5: I understand when. In no way, shape, or form do we want to align. Do we want to align the perimeter with Sherman tanks when it comes to a school? Schools right. are an in- are an institution of learning. I got that. But at the same token, if you read the tea leaves, it clearly reflects that we need to do a better job at fortifying the premise of a school to, uh, of a school or a soft target. And the fortification can be as minimal as having a resource officer that's armed. Now you made mention to what happened in Parkland, whereas we did have an armed resource officer and we still had the carnage. That was the case there. But how many other thwarted plots have we had in the past where we did have an armed police officer that was at a particular place and the assailant chose to go somewhere else? We can't want to take that. But statistics... uh, I apologize, go ahead
0: no i just want to I just want to build on that because it's a really important point here, as we start to have conversations and I just want to tell the audience for a moment i've been doing a lot of thinking about what are some solutions that actually might bring people together it's one thing to say oh we we need to we need to have conversations and we need to stop the blame game. we need to compromise that's all well and good. I believe that, but I think then you have to say, okay, what are you open to actually discussing? What are you ruling out? What are you ruling in, and what are you open to i'm thinking about that. I'm writing about that. And I hope to share some of those thoughts of my own on the show tomorrow in the process of going through that research and that thinking. I had something in the back of my head, Lieutenant. It's like, I think I've written about good guy with a gun thwarting a school shooting at least once or twice. So I actually Googled my own work and I found two examples from a few years ago, one from Illinois, one from Maryland. And these are just, you know, random examples out of many where in one case a, a an armed officer in Illinois saw an armed student approaching the school confronted him exchanged gunfire wounded the kid no one else was hurt and a a massacre was prevented that's an example of that sort of thing working there was another one in Maryland where the shooting began there was an officer who immediately engaged uh the shooter and took him down and the damage was significantly minimized it could have been so much worse so I do think it is a fallacy when people point to Parkland, for example, saying, "Ah, the the armed officers that it just doesn't work." That's ignoring your point and some of the examples that I just gave, where it actually uh, that I just gave where it actually did stop or thwart or maybe you know untold cases deter things from happening. I think that has to be part of the conversation. Thirty seconds. I'll give you the last word,
5: Guy. You're absolutely right. Criminals are proponents of Taking the route of least resistance. The route of least resistance is a person that's unarmed. But we have to do, in addition to having armed armed, armed personnel that are police officers, not teachers, but police officers, we also need to build and fortify the infrastructure. An example of fortifying the infrastructure is merely locking the door. If you lock the door and you don't allow an armed adversary into the building, that cuts down on 90% of the problem.
0: Yeah, I mean, and it's not foolproof and you know, you can lock the doors, you know, so people can't enter from the public, but kids can get out there are different ways to do this, but we have to be talking about these things and I know immediately people try to start poking holes in anything that's suggested and that's fine to point out limitations, but there's limitations to any supposed or potential solution here and that's why I think having these conversations is essential. Darren Porcher is a former lieutenant with the NYPD, Fox News commentator. And, uh, Lieutenant, thank you. Thank you,
5: Guy. God bless you, and God bless your listeners. And live safely.
0: We will be right back. The Guy Benson Show. More next. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. And I mentioned this in the last segment to our guest. I have been doing some thinking about, OK, what are perhaps some acceptable ideas to help mitigate this problem? Mass shootings, which is a unique problem in the United States, not exclusive to the United States, but Uniquely, disproportionately prevalent. Still very rare. I think it's important to point that out. Doesn't ease the suffering of people directly affected by it. But there's a lot of anxieties out there over something that is still, thankfully, vanishingly rare. Not rare enough. But we know what some people want to do. Ban guns. We know what other people want to do, which is... Fortify schools. But don't forget in Buffalo is a shopping center, a grocery store. The soft targets. That the lieutenant was talking about, we we can't do all of that everywhere. So I think there's going to have to be different things considered. With constitutional rights being fundamental to the conversation, they're not ancillary as some people seem to treat them. I'm going to try to add some constructive thoughts on that front on the show here tomorrow. Josh Krossauer coming up next, talking electoral politics, though. Stay tuned.
1: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: As we continue here on the Guy Benson Show, I know we've been very focused on the school shooting today and some of the updates there, and I think rightly so. There are other things happening in the world as well. And we have given, I think, somewhat short shrift to Tuesday's primary elections. And I want to at least talk about that a little bit more here with our guest, Josh Krasauer, politics editor at National Journal and a Fox News radio political analyst. And, Josh, we had you on to preview some of these races and talk about the dynamics in Georgia and elsewhere. Okay, now we have the outcomes. We did touch on Georgia a bit yesterday with a few different guests. I just want to get your big top-line takeaways out of that state.
4: Yeah, Guy, I mean, the, the big takeaway is that Trump spent an extraordinary amount of political capital to elect Republicans who endorsed his stop-the-steel election denialism, and he didn't just lose in almost all of those races, one, one or two exceptions to them, but, you know, Governor Kemp won by over 75 percent of the Republican primary vote. Secretary of State Brad Raffensberger, who had that famous call with President Trump in the immediate aftermath of the 2020 election, won outright and is going to get another term in office. Uh, even even some of these congressional primaries where Trump got involved, his candidates came in second place, well behind uh, the, the non-Trump candidates in those races. So this is about as a strong a rebuke in any one state that that we've seen. Uh, And I don't think it's a coincidence because, number one, the president interfered and and intervened in many of these races to an extent we didn't see in a lot of other states. And and you could argue that Trump actually cost Republicans the Senate by, uh, you know, making these inaccurate claims about the election in the aftermath of 2020 depriving Republicans from winning those two seats in Georgia. And I think a lot of Republicans were growing a little bit sick and tired of it.
0: Yeah. A lot of them, obviously, Based on the results, I would also say it was repudiation of Stacey Abrams and Joe Biden and their conspiratorial lies about voter suppression and the new elections law, which the president said would be worse than Jim Crow, uh, than Jim Crow, worse than Jim Crow. That was his assessment. And there were all sorts of things that were said about it. And it was obviously all very racial and racially charged. Uh, We have discussed this before, Josh. It was not true then. It is totally exposed now as you look at the final score. And not only was a new record set on turnout, the record was shattered. Went from 1.1 million in 2018, the last midterm primary, 1.8 or 1.1 rather, 1.1 total, both parties combined, turnout four years ago in the primary. This year, more than 1.9 million Turned out a massive increase of more than three quarters of a million voters and much more, you know, participation and turnout early, which is what we were told was going away or being suppressed. And now you're seeing, you know, just mum, nothing from the White House. I wish people would ask them about it. Nothing from the corporations who bought into the lies like Major League Baseball. And when Stacey Abrams has been asked about it, she's like, oh, well, you know, uh, turnout really has nothing to do with suppression. And suppression is unrelated to turnout, which uh, I think to be very polite about it is untenable nonsense. Uh, But it seems like she kind of knows that she has a reality problem here.
4: Yeah, it's sh- shameless nonsense. I mean, she used just like uh, Trump did. She used the, this fear of, of, of voter suppression, of grievance, uh, to, to motivate her own voters. And, and when you play with fire, sometimes you get burned. And that's what happened. Um, where you know all of her claims have pretty much been proven false. In fact, I, I, I would make the argument, guy, that Georgia probably has among the best run election systems in any state in the country. But we're still counting votes in Pennsylvania and in Oregon from elections that were held about two weeks ago. Georgia... Had huge turnout, short lines, early voting, and we haven't heard of a single serious allegation of any problems in any in any any polling station throughout the whole state of Georgia. I mean, that's yep. a success and story. That's a success r- story. And, and the fact that we heard these lies and these, I mean, Georgia has been the state where you've heard more lies about elections than any any and anywhere else ever. And yep. once the press, we've talked about this before. The press called out one set of lies, but they didn't fact check the other set of lies and and the results outcome from what happened uh, in the Georgia primaries I think are very proof positive that, that Georgia does have a well-run system and had a high turnout high participation and, and very few problems counting votes and administration and, yeah,
0: and in, in 2018 that was a very big Democratic year a lot of engagement on the Democratic side they had an active primary a contested primary for governor and they had a little over five fifty thousand people turn out in that primary four years ago this year with nothing contested Senate or governor is you know an incumbent and a woman who considers herself the incumbent who is running unopposed, they had what, four seven hundred and thirty some odd thousand voters on the Democratic side alone. A huge turnout, a huge increase among Democrats, including a lot of people that we were told would be suppressed, and it just was not true. I want to ask you, Josh, about Alabama. I know there were a few other races here or there. You mentioned Pennsylvania, we're nine days out After that election, and we're going to a recount in the Pennsylvania uh, primary on the Senate side of the Republicans in that state. So it got us eight days until we even started the process of a recount, you know, speaking of systems that aren't working terribly well. So we're going to have to wait a while there. Dr. Oz still in the lead by almost a thousand votes uh, at last report. Alabama had an interesting race in their Senate primary for an open seat. Because one of the people in that race, Congressman Mo Brooks, was the Trump favorite, the Trump endorsed candidate. He was struggling mightily in the polls. He was in a distant third place. Trump, I guess, got cold feet, was embarrassed, was worried that that wouldn't look good for him with his endorsed guy, you know, not even making a runoff. So Trump publicly unendorsed him. He withdrew his endorsement based on a a total made up thing that Mo Brooks was too woke, which is just nuts. (laughs) If you know Mo Brooks, that's crazy. But that was Trump's excuse because he wanted to avoid an embarrassment. And then weirdly, after the unendorsement, Brooks surged into second place and is now forced to run off. Now, he might be a long shot in the runoff, but he gained after Trump cut him loose. And I know everyone is is claiming the MAGA mantle, I don't think that, you know, Trumpism is gone or fading in the Republican Party. That's not my argument. But the Mo Brooks example, I think, is sort of fascinating.
4: Right. You're you're seeing candidates that are MAGA, but are finding they don't need Trump's support to to get momentum or or to rebound in the case of of Mo Brooks. We saw that in Pennsylvania, too, where you had a very MAGA-aligned candidate and Kathy Barnett, who Trump criticized and said she wasn't his choice and she still won a good chunk of the vote 25 percent of the vote probably took a lot of votes away from from dr. Oz um, so you're, you're seeing voters making up their own minds even those who are pretty you know favorably disposed to Trump and, and pretty right wing or, or conservative in, in their in their worldview um, you know I, the bigger story in Alabama I think is that Katie Britt came pretty close to fifty percent. Of the vote, she she outperformed the polls, um, or she did better than what the polls suggested she'd do. So, she's going to be facing Mo Brooks in a a runoff, and it will. Even though Trump, we'll see what Trump does. He could endorse Katie Britt theoretically, but if he stays out of it, and it's just a battle between two two different Republicans with two different worldviews, you know, I, I think Britt has done herself quite well running a very yeah. mainstream conservative campaign and
0: outperforming the polls as you mentioned there josh so we'll keep an eye on that runoff and this recount in pennsylvania as well josh Crosshour, national journal fox news radio political analyst thank you josh we will step aside we'll be right back after this short break Welcome back to The Guy Benson Show on this Thursday. Glad to have you here. Joining us is Julio Rosa, senior writer at townhall.com, my colleague there. Also author of a new book, Fiery But Mostly Peaceful, The 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America. It's out now. We will get to that book in a moment. Julio joins us from Uvalde, Texas. And welcome back to the show. Thanks, Guy. So... What are you seeing and hearing on the ground? You spent a lot of time in Texas, in South Texas, usually covering the border. This is another type of horrible news event to be tracking. What can you tell us from what you are seeing and experiencing in that grief-stricken community?
6: Well, I mean, this isn't the first time I've been to it all day because, as you said before, it was always in the context of the border crisis because it's only an hour away. And that's why I was in South Texas to begin with earlier this week. Uh, and then, you know, Tuesday happened, and we decided to head over there to see what was going on. And unfortunately, I mean, it's a very small town. And, you know, that, that's why there was a lot of uh, extra law enforcement personnel, like Border Patrol and Texas Highway Patrol, uh, outside of the city's police department, just because there's all this other stuff that's happening. And really, what what struck me the most was that the police were on the scene, within a very short amount of time, but the shooting happened for an extended period of time than we would normally think because the the, the standard operating procedure in these school shootings post-Columbine is that you don't wait for backup, essentially. You don't wait for a SWAT or or team or equivalent to that. You have to go in immediately to try to take out the threat as soon as possible. And as we're learning more and more about the timeline of Tuesday's events, unfortunately, it seems like Uh, They simply contained the shooter, the uh, police contained the shooter inside the classroom uh, for up to 40 minutes. And so that's why, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, the death toll is so high, because uh, for one reason or another, they did not make an attempt to breach the classroom um, as soon as possible.
0: Right. And we asked questions about that early in the show. I know that there was a press conference earlier today where they were addressing a lot of questions on a number of different subjects. Julio, before I turn to your book, because I want to make sure that our audience learns more about what you've written. But when you talk to people in Uvalde, are you talking to parents? Are you talking to law enforcement? Some mix. What is just the sense of what you're getting about what that town is going through right now?
6: Well, I can tell you that, you know, as often in these cases, right? People who are outside and talking heads and pundits within the political sphere, there's a there's a rush to politicize a tragedy like this, and obviously what happened to Evaleda was no exception. But being in the town, uh, there's really no talk about the, the the broader political context because they are simply focused on the tragedy. I mean, it, it, what was really frustrating to me is that, you know, arriving at the school shortly after the shooting was over, uh, you know, people, again, were, you know, blaming the NRA and, you know, blaming guns and all this other stuff. And there, and parents still didn't know where their children were. They were still missing or they, they weren't um, – they hadn't been reunited with them yet. And so, you know, uh, there, there's also this, this rush uh, from the left to, you know, uh, try to do away with thoughts and prayers and say they, they don't matter or they're useless. Well, yesterday the town held a prayer vigil. They sang hymns. They, they they got together as a community to pray and try to comfort one another. And so I think it's important to point out that even though, you know, some parts of the rest of the country are, are trying to just say, Oh, you know, forget thoughts and prayers, you know, th- that's useless. The people who are actually affected by this, they decided to come together and pray. Now that's not to say that yeah, later on I... they might not call for political action, but in the moment they decided to uh, come together as a community, and I think that's I saw
0: one member of Congress in particular tweeted, bleep your thoughts and prayers, and I thought, wow, that is really quite a thing to say, quite a thought to express publicly when, as you say, the impacted community is leaning very heavily on prayers right now for reasons that I think are obvious to many of us. And very briefly, Beto O'Rourke, of course, traveled to Uvalde, and he pulled what I thought call a stunt. It seemed it was preplanned, obviously, yesterday. I guess for his purposes, to some extent, it worked. It got a lot of attention. I don't know how it will play with so-called normal people. I know how it played with me. Uh, I can guess how it played with you. I just wonder how it played in that city, in that town, among those people.
6: Uh, so I actually spoke to the mayor, of uh and the mayor was the one who was telling uh, Beto at, at that press conference that he was outline and called him an SLB. Uh, and so I actually uh, talked to the mayor after the vigil yesterday, uh, which was in the evening, and, and he, the mayor understandably stood by what, what his reaction because he said that, you know, yes, there can be a discussion, again, about the broader political uh, implications and process, you know, in the aftermath of all this, but that was a press conference being given by an elected officials, elected officials, providing an update about what 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 had happened, right? And so this wasn't some political rally. This wasn't some, you know, grandstanding by Governor Abbott's office. This was an official event trying to provide uh, more information about this. So um, the mayor very much, you know, understandably, again, just said, you know, I have no respect for Beto, and, you know, who can blame him?
0: Julio, on another subject, and I mentioned this in your intro, you've written a book called Fiery But Mostly Peaceful which is just that famous CNN graphic with the fires literally raging in the backdrop of a live shot, but mostly peaceful was the buzz phrase being used frequently to describe those riots back in 2020. The subtitle of the book, 2020 Riots and the Gaslighting of America. What prompted you to ultimately write this book, and why would you encourage people to go check it out? What would they learn from reading your book?
6: So the reason why I wrote the book is because all of my work covering the riots is online, whether through Town Hall or through through my Twitter account. So That's where I was providing live updates. And so um, after having gone and witnessed many of the very big events from Minneapolis to Kenosha, the Rittenhouse shooting, et cetera, um, I wanted to put out a physical medium to preserve oral history because as as the subtitle uh, points to is that – Unfortunately, there was a lot of gaslighting from from the media and Democratic politicians as well about what was actually happening in American cities, in American communities.
0: Right. Uh, and that revisionism, know. by the way, was happening in real time at the time, and it's only, I would argue, intensified since, especially because some of the things being said or justified or ignored back then – no longer are as politically palatable or appealing as they might have seemed back then. And so a lot of people are kind of trying to erase the Wayback Machine and rewrite their own interaction with that part of our recent history. That's my view of this.
6: Yeah, absolutely. And so it's the, the book is about my perspective, but in, in my opinion, the strongest part of the book is where I went back to cities like Minneapolis and Kenosha to interview the survivors and hear their stories uh, about what they had to do in order to survive, because I mean we're talking about you know mass lawlessness where if you called nine one one, no one was going to answer. I mean that that was that's how crazy it got in some of these cities. We're not talking about a third world country. We're talking about the United States, and so uh, you know people will learn not just the, my full experience, but the experiences of others, uh, along with remembering. Uh, What the media did, and I mean, it's crazy to think that now we're two years—we're coming up on two years now—and how just egregious the journalism malpractice that took place last year in 2020 because of who was perpetrating the riots and what the riots. Well, and and there's the there's the
0: aftermath, right? And I think that's such an important part of this. It's not just what were they saying and doing, what was happening at the time. Tons of attention on that. Big arguments in our country about what was happening, but then. Those problems, those burned out communities, those shattered lives and livelihoods don't just go away when the cameras are gone and when it's no longer treading on Twitter. Those are people who are still in those cities trying to pick up the pieces, and you've gone back and spoken to them and relayed their stories in this book, fiery but mostly peaceful, by our guest, my colleague at townhall.com, Julio Rosas, who joins us from Uvalde, Texas today. Julio, thank you very much, and I encourage people to check out your book. Thank you very much. Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. That is straight ahead. Please stay tuned. It's the final hour here on the Guy Benson Show. I am Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern time every weekday. We do appreciate that. If you can't listen live, there's also a podcast available for you on demand every day, free of charge, including bonus Benson on the weekends. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Everything for you right there, GuyBensonShow.com. Also for the podcast, there's foxnewspodcasts.com or other avenues wherever you get your podcast. On social media, we are at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. This hour is sponsored by our friends at The Finish Long Drink, which is a terrific beverage. It is alcoholic, so 21 plus only, please. Always drink responsibly, thelongdrink.com. You can plug in your zip code. They'll show you where Their product is sold around you. You can also order online. They have been expanding in a big way. Even these last few weeks, we've talked about that. TheLongDrink.com. Give it a try. As we enter our last hour of today's show, I want to respond to something that was said last night on television by Jimmy Kimmel, who has a late-night comedy show on ABC. And I will refrain from taking shots at... The ratings and talking about who he's losing to and all that stuff, I don't really want to make this personal. There are a number of lines that I often go to when I'm addressing Jimmy Kimmel because overall I do not really respect him very much as a person. I think I'll just lay that out there. And I think when it comes to his political commentary, which seems to be quite a lot of his comedy these days, it is half-baked, ill-informed, tendentious – ideological, and unfair, and he is entitled to use his platform however he sees fit. I do the same here. That's fine, but there are people who disagree with me that I respect, and there are people who disagree who I respect less, and he is more in that latter category. Now, why even bother spending time on the rantings of a left-wing comedian? Why use precious airtime on this show to respond to that? Well, for the same reason that we reacted to that NBA coach going off at a press conference, Steve Kerr, yesterday. And that reason is the clips are emotional, the things that they say are fraught with passion and accusation, and with a lot of people very spun up and angry. And sad and frustrated for good reasons. And I think that the emotions being felt by people like Kerr and Kimmel and me and anyone else on the right and many of you, those are legitimate feelings. Those of us in the public eye can make choices about how we channel our emotions, how we channel those feelings. And I think that there are productive, constructive ways to do it and then not so much counterproductive, anti-constructive ways. And I think that's what Kerr did. I think that's what Kimmel did. But their videos have gone viral, which I think in some ways was kind of the point. I'm going to go out and speak truth to power, and I'm going to say my thing, and people are going to pay attention, and they're going to share it. I'll get attention. My message will get out. And maybe in their minds, the justification is I can help Foment change using my words. I think a lot of it is just choir preaching. And I can explain why that is here in just a moment, specifically with Kimmel. But because these snippets are shared far and wide, we have to make a decision here at this show and people who might be on the other side of any given issue, the decision has to be made. Is this low-hanging fruit where I'm just amplifying a bad faith actor and engaging in a tit-for-tat where they say their talking points and then we fire back with our talking points and the cycle just repeats itself every single time something like this happens. Are you fueling that? Are we feeding into that? That's one side of it. The other side of it is, well, if we don't respond, are we just sitting here silently allowing them to suck up the oxygen and make their points unchallenged? Then it makes it seem like we... Don't really have a good response, or we're embarrassed or shamed into silence. That's the balancing act here in making decisions about what to address, what to highlight, what to amplify, what to respond to. And on this one, I think, obviously, the decision is that we should respond. So we're going to. I will also, before I play you some of the audio, say this there is something. ...of a diminishing returns effect with guys like Kerr and Kimmel. And again, I'm not saying that they should shut up and coach or shut up in comedy. They can do what they want. These are famous, rich people, much more famous and much richer than I am. If they want to exploit or take advantage of their following, their platform, their fame, their resources, their reach for various reasons... That's their call for them to make. I'm not in the business of saying, shut your mouth, sit down, stay in your lane. I'm the political pundit here, not you. But I do think that when people who are not political commentators or analysts stray into the lane of punditry over and over again, then they become closer to a pundit. And I'd say more open to criticisms and also if you're trying to persuade people with sort of a surprising, oh, wow, did you see what so-and-so said? When it's unusual, where that person doesn't typically wade into something, you might get more attention when it's surprising. I cannot say that it is any more, any longer terribly surprising at all when Steve Kerr decides to sit at a microphone and spout off about politics. For example, his big push recently to get police officers out of schools, which I think is exactly wrong. He does it all the time. He's a political animal. So when he says something, it does make the rounds. It does go viral. But in terms of persuading people or surprising people, I'm not sure how potent it is. And the same applies to Kimmel. How many times have we seen him tearfully raging on his comedy show about politics? And it's always a rage in one partisan direction. I think his first big entree into this was involving health care and his son's condition, and I get that. It's very personal, talking about the health and life of his own kid. And he got a huge response to that. And then he started shaming certain senators, and then he decided, oh, I kind of like how this feels, and he does it more and more. Famously, in some cases, taking talking points from Chuck Schumer's office. He just literally gets talking points from the Democrats and works them into his comedy monologues. So with all of that said, he did another one last night, nine or ten minutes. I will not play all of it. Just a few sound bites, including and starting with, for our purposes, Cut 36.
3: Here we are again on another day of mourning in this country. Once again, we grieve for the uh, little boys and girls whose lives have been ended and whose families have been destroyed. While our our leaders on the right, the Americans at Congress and at Fox News and these other outlets, warn us not to politicize this. Um, They immediately criticize our president for even speaking about doing something to stop it because they don't want to speak about it because they know what they've done and they know what they haven't done. And they know that it's indefensible, so they'd rather sweep this under the rug.
0: Now, you can hear the sadness in his voice, and I don't doubt its sincerity. I've had to catch myself on the air, on this show, on TV, to try to keep it together. When you are seeing the images of these kids who were slaughtered, these smiling, little, young, innocent children, of course, it is heart-wrenching. I don't think that's an act. I think that's just empathy. And we all feel that it's not unique to us or to them. Should there be an us or a them when it comes to mourning the slaughter of children? I don't think there should be. But what is it? Three sentences into this our leaders on the right. Congress, Fox News. Immediately, he's getting to the enemies, the political enemies. Like, oh, we hate Fox News, so we're upset about something. Let's blame Fox. Let's go after them. You can criticize what some of the opinion people at this network believe about gun policy. You can criticize what members of Congress believe about gun policy. I think if the NRA and NRA dollars went away tomorrow... Almost every single one of those people would believe the exact same thing. They are not bought off or corrupt. They just believe differently than Jimmy Kimmel and others. And when you talk about your solutions, Jimmy, a lot of people believe that those are not actually solutions that would work or are practical or are legally or constitutionally permissible or are actually responsive to the details of any of these mass shootings that we're talking about. Certainly not all of them. Now, I get the point, and I take the point, that saying, oh, let's not politicize, sometimes is a cop-out. I think when you are talking about public policy on very emotional days, maybe you're not in the best place to think strategically or to think, critically about things, and great decisions are not necessarily made emotionally. But emotions are an obvious, unavoidable component. When you're talking about a classroom littered with the bodies of children who've been murdered, senselessly. To talk about political solutions or ideas immediately in the aftermath, I think, probably is appropriate. What's not appropriate is all the blood on your hands, your complicit stuff. I think that's what bothers people like me more than anything. Not that you want to talk about gun control or whatever. Some people do say that, oh, let's not go down that path. It's too soon. Let's not politicize this. And they say, well, when are we allowed to be angry? When are we allowed to politicize it? I get that. But he went on in that clip to say, oh, they know what they've done. They meaning us, Fox News. He names us. They, meaning members of Congress, they know what they've done. They know it's indefensible. Really? I think they actually defend it regularly. You might disagree. You might think their points are bad, and I think there's a mix of good and bad points. But I don't think it's indefensible because it is defended routinely. And he says they don't want to talk about it. They'd rather sweep it under the rug. I don't know if you've been watching Fox News Channel any time this week. But this is almost the only thing that we've been talking about. There's other topics mixed in from time to time, but this is the dominant story on our network and the other networks and on this show. Do I come to work excited to talk about these kids who have been murdered? I don't. Has it taken a small toll on me and my mental health this week? Yes, it has. Does that matter in the scheme of things, certainly compared to the atrocity that happened down there and the lives that have been torn apart down there? No, it's like it. Tales pales in comparison, so I'm not going to sit here and complain about it. But we've been talking about it. We haven't been averting our eyes. It's not like the lead story on Wednesday was, oh, gosh, let's do three hours about the Georgia primaries. I would love to have talked about the primaries in much greater depth than we did. But we're talking about these things, and we have people with varying opinions on them on the air. So it's just not true that people on the other side are just looking away in shame because it's indefensible. That is a cartoon version of what's actually happening. It's like this guy doesn't really know any of us or watch us or pay attention to what we actually think. Or if he does, he's willfully blind or doesn't want to acknowledge anything other than his little narrow cartoon version. Poisoning the well, exacerbating the problem, in my view. I have more to say on this, and I'll finish my thought after this short break. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy
1: Benson Show. More next.
0: Back on The Guy Benson Show, responding to some of the things said last night by Jimmy Kimmel. And one of the other comments that he made in Cut 37 is this. Listen.
3: Here's the thing I would like to say to Ted Cruz, the human being, and Governor Abbott, everyone. It's okay to admit you made a mistake. In fact, it's not just okay, it's necessary to admit you made a mistake when your mistake is killing the children in your state. It takes a a big person to do something like that. It takes a brave person to do something like that. And do I think these men are brave people? No, I don't. I don't. But, man, I would love it if they surprised me. I would love it if any of these guys surprised me.
0: He's calling on these Republican elected officials to admit their mistake, and the mistake is, quote, killing the children in your state. That is so demagogic, so grossly unfair, such a grotesque twisting of what any conservative or Republican actually believes. The vast majority of these officials have children and love them and care about children and value life. To Say, oh, all I ask. Republicans is for you to stand up and say oh we were wrong and our wrongness is killing children. What a ridiculous thing to say what a preposterous request. What a preposterous request dressed up as just sort of this simple suggestion. Why can't you just be brave. It's so cynical. It's so sleazy. And I would submit to you. That it's this kind of attitude and this kind of response that makes actual progress and real conversations almost impossible, if not impossible. If you want to make yourself feel better and go viral and make a bunch of people that already agree with you clap and click, retweet and share, and then get all that approbation come in and then trigger the people that you hate anyway and get them angry and they deserve it. If that's what you want to do, then this is the way to go. It's really hard, I think, in a genuine way to say, oh, these people just want solutions. And so let's deal with them when they're accusing you effectively of being pro-child murder or complicit in child murder. That's not a starting point for anything positive or productive, nothing, especially when we're talking about the deaths of children. I get this is what happens in politics. People stir up their own side. They go for the clicks. We're guilty of it here sometimes, too. I try to avoid that on issues this grave. And I think whether you're Steve Kerr or Jimmy Kimmel, maybe this stuff, you know, is extremely heartfelt, comes from the heart. You really believe this is what needs to be said. I would suggest when you and people like you say it over and over again and then you get a negative response— from the people you are begging to meet your demands, maybe you should rethink how you go about this, how you talk about it, how you approach it. Just a thought. That would take courage. It takes a big person to do something like that. It takes a brave person to do something like that on his late night show. Do I think Jimmy Kimmel is a brave person? No, I don't. I don't. But man, I would love it if he surprised me. I would love it if any of those guys ever surprised me. How's that sound, Jimmy? Did I persuade you? Think about that. It's the Guy Benson Show.
1: Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson.
0: We are back on the Guy Benson Show. Earlier in today's program, Darren Porcher formerly of NYPD, joined us to discuss everything that happened in Uvalde and this strange, shifting timeline. Here's part of that analysis with a former NYPD official. Darren, it is good to have you here. Well, thanks for having me
5: on. However, these are unfortunate circumstances that I'm going to opine on, so we'll do the best that we can to get through this tough time.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and I appreciate it. I want to ask you... I'm not sure if you had the opportunity to watch the press conference earlier in Uvalde. Uh, there are a lot of people asking questions about what the police did or did not do, uh, when they did or did not do those things. A lot of parents were very upset. That's now being widely reported. Uh, that the timeline that's been given, some of the details have changed multiple times. What do you make of all of this? Is it is it normal to have a lot of big things that are told to the public shift or change 48 hours later are people being too hard on law enforcement here are we missing something when we're asking these questions i'm I'm very curious how you are seeing this through the lens of someone who worked for your career in law enforcement well the anticipation
5: for the common citizen is we want as much information as quickly as possible in the wake of a mass shooting of this magnitude that being said police, law enforcement, and the public affairs officers are working as hard as possible to get that information out. However, there's also a component of civil liability that they're being, ele- they, they want to be somewhat surreptitious, and I use that term surreptitious lightly, to protect the municipality from an upcoming uh, lawsuit. That being said, the information that's coming out is ever so evolving, and it's massive. I mean, from the number Number of shots that are fired from the time frames, the 911 call, who did what. This is a complicated um, narrative to compress, dissect, and get out to the public accordingly. That's why we hear the ever so evolving
0: changes in the story that's being put out to the public. One piece of it that I'm trying to wrap my head around is they t- they told us for two days that there was an armed officer at the school who confronted the gunman before he got into the school and they exchanged fire and that officer was wounded and then the killer went into the building and started killing children. Today they – I don't even want to call it clarified. They they changed it completely and said that didn't happen. That person didn't exist. The exchange did not occur. The shooter in the course of 12 minutes, I guess, from crashing his vehicle ended up in the school – unobstructed through an unlocked door, how does, how does that official account change? Because they announced that publicly multiple times, sort of in like, here's what we know, here's the information that we have ascertained so far, and they, they just sort of gave us a piece of information that they're now seeming to walk back entirely. How does that kind of thing happen? Well, I
5: give you an example. You can have 10 people that look at the same picture and give you 10 different perspectives on what they see. That being said, you had people in the earlier part of the investigation that introduced information that they may well have believed was accurate. However, based on people in a state of anxiety um, experiencing an event of this magnitude, their detail orientation may be off. And news media traditionally, and I'm guilty of it myself, will capture the information that they get immediately so they can get that out to the public. Unfortunately, on many occasions, this is wrong. From the outset, the very beginning of an incident, we're all speaking from a position of conjecture. We don't have all sides of the spectrum in connection with the incident. But going back to the resource officer, you know, it it becomes really troubling as to why we didn't have an individual that was protecting the lives of these innocent children at this school. And I give when we look at history, if you don't study history, you will be a victim of it years ago, we had the Nicholas Cruz shooting at Parkland. Nicholas Cruz got out of his vehicle and started shooting in the parking lot. There was an exchange of gunfire before Nicholas Cruz even got into the school and he was able to penetrate that front door because it was unlocked. We had a very similar dynamic that occurred in this situation. So it begs the question of what fortifications were in play at that school to prevent an assailant from coming in. And It was clear that it was a flawed security uh, mechanism that was in play.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, Uh, we also found out in Parkland that there were officers who didn't do anything. And that ended up being a huge scandal down there. In this case, I have to say, Lieutenant, I don't know if there was an officer at this school or not before everything started, because we were told like confidently as a fact not just immediately after, but the next day, you know, at planned press conferences that this did happen. And that spawned a thousand hot takes about how good guys with the gun couldn't even stop what happened here. And then here we are Thursday afternoon and they say, oh, never mind. That person didn't exist. He wasn't there. There, there was no shootout with that person. Um, it's it's sort of just hard for me to fathom how that type of thing, how they get that wrong. And it's not, you know, a rumor that gets whispered to reporters. It's said in front of all the cameras and the microphones. I think they gave that information to the governor of the state who announced it. So clearly that was the official account. And I'm not saying that, you know, Governor Abbott lied or something. I think they gave him the official account. He related to the public. And now that official account is changing in in very dramatic ways. I think there will be lots of tough questions upcoming for the responding officers about what they did or did not do. I think sometimes it is unfair to second-guess police. I think sometimes it is fair to second-guess anyone, especially when things go so catastrophically wrong. You just made a point, though, Lieutenant, about school safety. Look, I feel like we should not turn schools into fortresses. We should not overstate and overcorrect for a problem that is – far too frequent but still extremely rare i also don't want kids defenseless as sitting ducks with no one there to protect them at all and now again it appears that there was no one there to protect them at all and that that reality if it is eventually confirmed uh could have been lethal your thoughts on that um
5: i understand when in no way shape or form do we want to align do we want to align the perimeter with Sherman tanks when it comes to a school schools right. are an or in- an institution of learning i got that but at the same token if you read the tea leaves it clearly reflects that we need to do a better job at fortifying the premise of a school to, uh, of a school or a soft target and the fortification can be as minimal as having a resource officer that's armed now you made mention to what happened in parkland where is we did have an armed resource officer and we still had the carnage that was the case there but how many other thwarted plots have we had right. in the past where we did have an armed police officer that was at a particular place and the assailant chose to go somewhere else. We can't you know to take that. But statistics, it, I, so, I apologize, go ahead.
0: No, I, I just want to build on that because it's a really important point here. As we start to have conversations, and I just want to tell the audience for a moment, I've been doing a lot of thinking about what are some solutions that actually might Bring people together. It's one thing to say, oh, we, we, need to, we need to have conversations, and we need to stop the blame game. And we need to compromise. That's all well and good. I believe that. But I think then you have to say, okay, what are you open to actually discussing? What are you ruling out? What are you ruling in? And what are you open to? I'm thinking about that. I'm writing about that. And I hope to share some of those thoughts of my own on the show tomorrow. In the process of going through that research and that thinking, I had something in the back of my head Lieutenant, it's like, I think I've written about good guy with a gun thwarting a school shooting at least once or twice. So I actually Googled my own work and I found two examples from a few years ago, one from Illinois, one from Maryland. And these are just, you know, random examples out of many where in one case, a, a an armed officer in Illinois saw an armed student approaching the school, confronted him, exchanged gunfire, wounded the kid. No one else was hurt. And a, ma- a massacre was prevented. That's an example of that sort of thing working. There was another one in Maryland where the shooting began. There was an officer who immediately engaged uh, the shooter. That full interview and all of today's show available online for free, part of the podcast. It's on demand. No charge to you every day. GuyBensonShow.com. When we come back, the home stretch. we might try to talk about laughter. We might try. When we return, stay tuned.
1: For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com.
0: Home stretch here on the Guy Benson Show, Thursday edition. Appreciate you listening. GuyBensonShow.com, podcast free every day. So last night, Adam and I went to dinner with some very close friends, Mary Catherine Ham, Katie Pavlich, and a friend of ours named Zhang Zhang Toy, who's a fashion designer, who's a fascinating character. I've mentioned him on the air before. Malaysian immigrant, first generation, came from a very working poor family in far-flung Malaysia. Came to America as a very young man with nothing but an immense amount of talent when it comes to designing high-end clothes. And he went to school for that, and his first little collection that he designed got the attention of Anna Wintour. She put him on the cover, and the rest has been history. He's had a very successful career. He is maybe a hair over five feet tall. He's very flamboyant. He wears what he calls a mini kilt, which is just basically a skirt that he designs. And he always has a smile on his face. He always has fun stories to tell. Oh, and by the way, he's a right winger. Huge Fox viewer. And he's surrounded by people in his world, and in his industry, who don't really get that. But he is so infectiously nice and upbeat and very talented that he's sort of straddling these worlds. And I've had the privilege of going to some of his fashion shows through the years. And... It's quite a scene. Like, I remember one of them, probably the first one I went to, I was very nervous. I didn't know what to wear. What do you wear to a fashion show? And all these New York Fashion Week snobby people. So I emailed his assistant saying, what should I wear? I don't really know. I was thinking about maybe getting some new shoes, and I was just sort of stressing a little bit about it, inconsequential, but you know, the mentality. And Zhang left me a voicemail in response to the inquiry, and he said simply, You come, you be yourself, you're fabulous, and he hung up. (laughs) That was it. So Zhang's amazing. And and at that fashion show, that first one, several cast members from Orange is the New Black were there when that show was red hot. So there was a celebrity set, the high fashion set, and then there was like Bill Hemmer and Kimberly Guilfoyle (laughs) and yours truly. Quite an array. So we had dinner with Zhang. He's in D.C. for just a few days selling some of his garments and doing fittings and whatever exactly it is that he does. It's just like such a foreign world to me. But we had a lovely dinner, and we talked about a lot of things. We caught up on a few things. For example, he's gotten some attention recently because it looks kind of like Ralph Lauren stole one of his famous designs. And dressed Alicia Keys in a very similar dress for the Met Gala. And it sort of became a thing with the side-by-side images of a dress that Zhang had designed years ago. So we asked him for some of the tea on that. And he told us. He was somewhat gracious about it. uh, But he was, you know, clearly enjoying the fact that the imitation got called out. In any case. Under normal circumstances, this would have been nothing but a joyful dinner, but it had an air of sadness about it because how can you live in America and not feel something about what's happened this week in Texas? And we talked about it, and yes, it's a downer, but you're not necessarily entitled to happy-go-lucky dinners with friends where you can just erase things from your memory and your thoughts. I think we should think about these things. I think we should talk about these things. Now, I'm not saying that we need to live our lives in solemn grief forever. I think people affected directly by this will have a lot more of a lasting pain here, unsurprisingly. I think it's okay to think about other things and do other things and live your life. But I think many of us aren't really fully ready to be there yet. One thing I was thinking about was generally I'm a pretty good-humored person. I like to laugh. Haven't been doing a lot of laughing this week. And I did see, and we were talking about this actually at dinner a little bit, none of us have caught it yet. But there's that new Netflix special, Ricky Gervais doing stand-up. And boy, he is very irreverent, nothing sacred, that kind of comic. His performance as MC of, what was it, the Emmys? I don't know, the Golden Globes maybe. Whatever that was a few years ago was still legendary. And I've seen some clips of the new stand-up routine. And already it's got people all angry because he's making trans jokes. From what I understand is he makes a lot of jokes about a lot of different types of people, and there's a lot of people who might be offended. That's how his comedy works. But I guess only the trans stuff is getting the headlines because I guess that's the verboten thing. You're not supposed to joke about that. Hence the backlash against Dave Chappelle. because Someone felt justified in physically assaulting him for his jokes. I saw actually John Mulaney had a surprise appearance on stage. From Chappelle at a recent show. And 99% of people were thrilled and delighted and excited to hear from Chappelle. Arguably the most famous comedian in the world right now. But the very loud shouters. The loud people on social media. Now going after John Mullaney. How can you hug this man? How can you be friends with this transphobe? Why would you force your fans to pay money to be sort of sandbagged by this bigot at your show unannounced? Look, no one was super glued to their seat. If the appearance of Dave Chappelle is so deeply alarming to you that you can't handle it, you are welcome to walk out. I'm not sure if a single person did because most of us can take a joke. So whether it's tonight or later this weekend, I think we're going to watch the Gervais special. and I'm going to brace for impacts. I know some of it will probably make me cringe. Some of it will make me laugh. Some of it might hit close to home That's sort of how comedy works. And I'm still on pins and needles for that final Norm MacDonald special that he filmed for Netflix before he died. So I'm going to allow myself, hopefully, to laugh here sometime soon. And once I've seen the special, I will let you know what I think about it. How about that? Back here tomorrow... For the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show, we are going to try to have a slightly lighter show tomorrow while still, of course, covering the news. Same time, same place right here. Thank you for listening and have a great night.